Welcome to To Every Generation, the broadcast ministry of Calvary Chapel Crossfields, located in Jamesburg, New Jersey, where we teach through the entire Bible, verse by verse, and make application to every generation so we can grow in our relationship with God. This morning we're going to be in Mark 11, verse 1, and the last time we looked at it, we left off with Bartimaeus, who was blind, and the Lord healed him, and he was so excited to see the Lord, he was so excited to follow the Lord, and we talked about the zeal that we should have for the Lord, who's done so much for us as well. Today we're going to look at the triumphal entry, which, quite frankly, whoever came up with the term, it was a brilliant moniker, or marquee, or um, idea a phrase about what Jesus did when he rode into Jerusalem. The triumphal entry, we could actually parallel that to the Roman triumph, which I'm sure those who named it had that in mind. Now, the Roman triumph was something that all the citizens of the Roman Empire would have seen, they would have understood. So we're going to go into a little history lesson and kind of make the comparison. The Roman triumph was a victorious general who conquered more territory, peoples, captured slaves for the Roman Empire. And they threw him a huge parade with all the people screaming and cheering and shouting out slogans for this victorious general. And what would happen was the general would come in with his crown and his toga. Yes, they wore togas back then. Uh, and Jesus, we find out sometime later on in the week, was plaited with a crown of thorns and he also was made to wear a purple robe in mocking him. But the general, he came in riding in a chariot with four horses pulling him. Jesus Christ came into Jerusalem riding on a donkey. The general had the people shout in exclamation and screaming and excitement for what he had done. Jesus had that too in the beginning, but by the end of the week they were shouting, Crucify him! The general would be flanked by his victorious soldiers who helped him do battle, the ones who were still alive. Jesus was flanked by his 12 disciples. The general would be flanked by his high priest. However, Jesus, the Bible tells us in Hebrews, is the high priest. He's the eternal high priest. The general would have killed scores of people and taken these poor men that weren't slaughtered or maimed. He took them in bondage and they were behind the processional of the parade as slaves, as booty, as, as spoils of war. However, Jesus came to free untold billions over the centuries from their sin, completely giving them some freedom and liberty. The general, his only mission was to kill and destroy and to continue to take territory for the Roman Empire. Jesus came not for this world. In front of Pilate, he said, my kingdom is not of this world. If it was, my servants would fight, but my kingdom is not of this world. And you would have no power, Pilate, unless it was given to you from God. For this I came to be crucified. So what Jesus did was he, didn't, he wasn't concerned about the temporal world, which was largely why he was rejected. Right? The people wanted him to vanquish the Romans. He came for the spiritual world. He came to bring people back into the fold, to storm the gates of, of heaven, as he says in the scripture, and many will be flooded into it. And this happened at the time of the crucifixion, when people believed in him. Some may look at us and read the scripture and say, big deal. This is your savior? How pathetic. But they have no idea what's going on behind in the spiritual realm. You see, Jesus proclaimed himself as the king. This was the appointed time. And then he was laser focused on the cross. 
He knew he had to come to die so that we could have eternal life. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever would believe in him would not perish, but have eternal life. Amen? Amen. We ride at dawn. <laughs> so, this is going to be a little bit of a shorter message. Um, I'm going to throw in some mathematics, some history, so I, I apologize in advance. Um, I hope that you, you know, this is one of those things where when you have friends that are unbelievers and they press you, prove it to me. I'll tell you what, there's two major prophecies in here. History, secular history is entwined in it. And this is really a good answer for us to have according to 1 Peter 3.15. To know why we believe what we believe. We don't just believe because it's a blind faith. There's actually substance to the faith that we have. So if, if we're not paying attention, you might be pressed at a later date and say, gee, I should have kept... I should have kept up and, and kept my eyes open for Pastor Joe because this was something I could have used today. And I do have some props. So I do have some unripe figs that I will throw at you if I see you nodding off. <laughs> but Okay, we'll come to that later. Verse 1. It says, Now when they came near Jerusalem to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, he sent out two of his disciples, and he said to them, Go into the village opposite you, and as soon as you have entered it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has sat. Loose it and bring it. And if anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord has need of it. And immediately he will send it here. So they went their way and found the colt tied by the door outside on the street, and they loosed it. And some of them who stood by said to them, What are you doing loosing the colt? So they spoke to them just as Jesus had commanded, and they let them go. That's impressive in itself. Jesus already in his omniscience knows that there is a, a cult, right? A, a young donkey that hasn't been ridden before. He knows where it is, and he knows he's going to send his disciples to get it, and he knows that the people are probably going to come outside, or if they're outside, and say, what are you doing stealing my donkey? And they're going to say, the, this is amazing. I mean, we just kind of sometimes gloss over this. This is prophetic. This is also in, in the Lord's omniscience. So they spoke to them just as Jesus had commanded, and they let them go. Then they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their garments on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their garments on the road, and others cut down leafy branches, leafy branches from the trees and spread them on the road. Then those who went before and those who followed cried out, saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the kingdom of our father, David, that comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. What I'd like to do is just kind of talk to you about this, this trek that the Lord makes. You know, it appears that he's, as we go through the gospel, he spends some time on the east side of the Jordan, then he goes to the west side of the Jordan, goes through Jericho, all right? He's going, he's going westward through Bethphage and Bethany, the Mount of Olives, and the Mount of Olives descends. You, you go towards the east gate of Jerusalem. So this is what he's doing. And the prophetic calendar is already ready for him to be proclaimed as the Messiah. I'm going to read Matthew 21, 4 through 5. Turn there with me, Matthew 21, 4 through 5. Matthew gives a little bit more detail. And what Matthew's doing is he's quoting from, remember, Matthew had more of a Jewish flavor to his gospel, trying to convince the Jewish people that Jesus was the Messiah. So he used the Old Testament a lot. So in Matthew's gospel, he records more that was said. 
And it says, this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet. Now, this would be Zechariah 9.9, some 500 years prior to this event taking place. Tell the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you, lowly and sitting on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. So let's look at the significance of this. He's a king, the king of kings and lord of lords. Now, if you look at some of the monarchies back in the day when they had them, even before the Roman Empire, a king would either sit on a donkey, a mule, or a war horse, depending on what his particular function was that day. As a matter of fact, we just covered this in 1 Kings 133, where Solomon rode David's mule when he was inaugurated as the king. Right? However, Jesus now is riding on this donkey as he's inaugurated. Notice, it says that no one ever sat on this animal. See, Christ's kingdom was very different. Yes, he came from the bloodline of David. However, he had a, a, a spiritual kingdom. Right? He was the preeminent one. No one had ever ridden on this donkey because Jesus had to have that preeminence. There was nobody like the Lord. So he wasn't going to take stuff from somebody else. It was going to be uh, new. Now, here's the irony is that the people largely rejected Jesus because he didn't ride the war horse and he didn't conquer the Romans. Old Testament scripture said that he would come as a lion and also a lamb. They didn't like the lamb part, especially not in the first century. You know, we have to be careful about scriptures that we don't particularly like. We have to be careful about scriptures that don't particularly fit our lifestyle. And even as Christians today, sometimes that happens. You know, they, we, we, we try to, we, we like the ones that lift us up and make us feel good. We don't like the ones that convict us and discipline us. We don't like the ones that say you're, what you're doing is wrong and you need to repent of it. Right? it. It always will get us in trouble. No matter who God's people are in, in you know, what, what part of time or what era, that is a truth that's eternal. So we know that Jesus eventually will ride the war horse. Can anybody tell me the scripture where Jesus rides the war horse? Revelation 19.11. And what a sight that will be. And that's where we want to be behind him. We don't want to be still remaining on the world, on the earth, when he comes down on that war horse. But he's given thousands of years for people to repent. Now let's take all this into account. So Jesus comes down from the Mount of Olives, goes into probably the East Gate, and there's a lot of fanfare. He's on the donkey. They get the donkey for him. They put their clothes on the donkey, maybe to make a makeshift saddle for the Lord. They, take the, they cut down the leafy branches from the trees, put them, throw them on the road, have him ride over it. And there's precedence in the Old Testament here. And they shout, Hosanna, which means save now. Turn with me to Psalm 118 in the Old Testament. Roughly a thousand years prior. Think about that. Think about our nation is a few hundred years old. When we turn the pages of this book, we're going back into scrolls that will take us back centuries and sometimes millennia. Think about that. So when we talk about prophecy, we talk about people you know, come against the scripture. Remember, there's the Septuagint, which actually fit into Grecian culture, uh, roughly 300 years uh, B.C., where the Jews were trying to show the polytheistic Grecians their monotheistic God. So you can't, you can't take that away. I mean, there is, like I said, the Septuagint was part of Grecian culture. So this nonsense, oh, you know, it's written by men and it's a fabrication, there's just too much. You can go into your search engine, take anything that I say, 
and it will give you these old relics, they'll give you these old Bibles that are still available, these old scrolls that are in museums under vacuum-sealed containers. So this is, listen, it is what it is. It's, it's fact, right? Usually I find the people who say that don't, haven't really done their homework on it, and some end up becoming believers by trying to discredit the Lord. We had a man like that actually speak at our church several years ago. Um, a Jewish man, his daughter went to college, and she came back and said, Dad, I'm a Christian. You could imagine how that went over. So he was on a mission to try to discredit Christianity, become saved himself, and then he's gone to be with the Lord since, but um, pretty impressive stuff. So let's go back into Psalm 118, roughly a thousand years prior to this, verse 22. Now think about these words. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. Jesus quotes that. He quotes that. He is that capstone. He is that foundation to the edifice. He's the one who's been rejected. It was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day which the Lord has made. People quote that a lot, but this is really the day that the Lord had made. You know, um, you know, we can quote it, it's okay, but the day that Jesus actually rode into Jerusalem was that day that the Lord had made, and we will rejoice and be glad in it. Save now, or Hosanna, I pray, O Lord. O Lord, I pray, send now prosperity. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you from the house of the Lord. So Jesus now, we, we, we cover the scriptures. Jesus gets the, you know, they want to make him a king. The people, the crowds want to elevate him. They want to, you know, carry him and, 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 you know, put a robe on him. You know, this has been going on for three plus years in the Lord's ministry. And he kept saying no. He would withdraw from the crowd. He didn't want them to make him a king. And, you know, you wonder, why all of a sudden now is this okay? because it was literally pinpointed to the day on the prophetic clock. Okay, so let's, let's go to actually the book of Daniel, which I'm going to cover actually after we, we go through Mark. This is where we have to, hopefully the coffee kicks in and we really have to pay attention, you know. And if you don't, didn't drink coffee this morning, just pray the Holy Spirit gives you a little boost. So in the book, The Search for Messiah, here's a Jewish doctor who becomes a believer and writes these amazing books. They're very simple. Um, goes back into the old uh, Targums and the, the Talmuds and the old ancient rabbinical writings, and he makes the case for the pre-first century rabbis, how they pointed to Christ as a Messiah, how they looked at scriptures as prophetic. It was only after the first century did these rabbis start now completely chaining, changing their tune because they didn't want to accept the suffering servant, the suffering Messiah. They wanted the king to vanquish Rome, but they weren't getting it according to God's plans. So the book is called The Search for Messiah, Mark Eastman. And in page 103, he speaks about, and I can go through dozens of these, but we don't have time for it. This is a time-sensitive prophecy started in the book of Daniel. Daniel now written roughly 500 years, half a millennia, prior to the advent of Jesus Christ, and Daniel now is writing. He has no idea what he's writing, but he just is being faithful to the Lord, and now it starts to unfold afterwards. So, in the book of Daniel 9:24 through 26, the angel Gabriel says to Daniel, "77s are determined for your people and for your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy." Know therefore and understand that the going forth of the command to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, that was the decree given by the Persian 
uh, king, uh, Artaxerxes, Long, Artaxerxes Longimanus. Go back into Persian history, you'll see the decree outside of the scripture. Until Messiah the Prince, there shall be, there shall be seven sevens, or Shabuah in the Hebrew, which is a, a period of seven years. Seven times seven is 490. And 62 sevens, the street shall be built again, and the wall even in troublesome times. After all, and after the 62 sevens, the Messiah shall be cut off or killed. Right? It's right here in the scripture. But not for himself. Not because Jesus did anything to, to warrant it, but he did it for us. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Now, remember, 490 years. However, 69 of those weeks took place, 483 years. Just follow me. By the end, hopefully, you know, I'll send, you, send me an email if it's not clear after I'm done explaining it. So the, um, Gabriel comes to, the angel Gabriel comes to Daniel and says, your people, meaning the Jews, this is what's going to happen. You're going to have this Persian king. He's going to give a decree to go back to Jerusalem, which was in ruins at the time. The temple was destroyed under the Babylonians. And he's going to allow you to rebuild. And then the temple's going to be re- rebuilt. And by the time Christ came on the first century, it was all done. It was all beautiful. And Herod did some um, remodeling and such. But he, the angel is giving him a timetable from a certain event recorded in history, Encyclopedia Britannica, you can find this, to Messiah the Prince. So actually an observant Jew could calculate the day that the Messiah was going to come into Jerusalem and present himself. Isn't that fascinating? Okay. Now there's a lot of things that go with it, but the 483 period has been done and then the church age came in, so the clock stopped. There's one more period of seven, which won't happen until the Lord comes for his people and then the seven-year tribulation starts again. Why? Because he said it's for your people. It isn't for the largely Gentile church. It's for when the seven-year period of tribulation comes. That's that last week. And then all the other goodies that we read in here will take place. So he says, he calculates, Sir Robert Anderson in his book, The Coming Prince, applied this principle to to the calendar at the time, and he came up with the fact that after this command to rebuild Jerusalem, if you counted 173,880 days, Jesus to that day rode into Jerusalem proclaiming himself as the Messiah. That's why there was such many messianic fervor in the first century. See, we, we could read the Bible and go, well, this, why are these people whipped up? What's the, what's the issue here? The issue is if you were an observant Jew, you could actually count to the day that your Messiah would come and present himself. This really gives a problem to those people that think that the Messiah hasn't come because Genesis 49.10, uh, Haggai 2.7 and 8, these are all time-sensitive prophecies, and because we live in linear time, when the time comes and goes, it can't happen again because it's in the past. Make sense? <laughs> All right, so basically what happens, it says that day, and, and he calculates April 6, 32 AD, was exactly 173,880 days after Artaxerxes gave the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem on March 14, 445 BC. It's in the history books. That day was the first day that Jesus of Nazareth allowed his disciples to proclaim him as the Messiah. I be. You can, you can get this. I would suggest this book. This is a fantastic book. Okay. There's a few other things that are recorded in the scripture. And I, you know I love to go through the parallel gospels. Luke 19, John 12, add a few more facts. And let's go through them. Number one, in John 12, 
When John is recounting this triumphal entry, he says this, the people say, Hosanna, king of Israel. Now you could imagine that the Jewish leadership and the Romans got a little tweaked when they heard that. Remember, the Romans were on double duty. They weren't overtime, so to speak, for the feast of the Passover because there was always a messianic fervor. And the Roman soldiers hated it because there was always a fight that broke out or somebody claiming to be Messiah. So when they called Jesus the king of Israel, everybody got a little torqued over this to be nice, to say it in a nice way. He also says in John 12 that there were witnesses to Lazarus' resurrection there. If we take the Bible chronologically, John tells us in John 11, Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. He resurrected him. So the people that actually saw that ended up at the feast, and they're like, oh yeah, he is the king. I saw him. That guy was dead for four days. He came out of the tomb. So you start, like I'm investigating here, you're just putting it all together. In Luke 19, the religious leaders tell Jesus... Tell them to be quiet. He didn't want that messian- they didn't want that messianic fervor to continue because it would take their place away. And Jesus said that if they are quiet, I tell you the truth, the rocks would cry out. That would have been a cool thing to see. You know, they're Christ's creations. If he wants to make them cry out, you know, in numbers, a donkey turned around to its owner and started talking to him. So God could do anything he wants to do, you know. The other thing we see, and this is the last block of, of history, and then it's going to be a little smooth sailing after this, so bear with me. The other thing we see is that Jesus weeps over Jerusalem, and this is, in, this is found in Luke 19. There were three roughly Roman Jewish wars, okay, and I'll get into that. But the first Roman Jewish war that started in 66 AD, go to your history books, it's all there. Everything I'm saying, word for word, secular history documented. We still have the Roman artifacts and, and, you know, annals and such. The first Roman-Jewish war culminated in, well, 70 AD with the destruction of the temple and then all the way to 73 AD with the siege of Masada, where the Jews went up to Masada and the Romans had to make a siege ramp and it took a long time. They finally got up there and many of them had taken their lives, all, all history. Unfortunately, Jerusalem was judged because of the corruptness that got into the spiritual system. Now, we've had 2,000 years of Christianity. I'm sure all of us at some point have seen some type of corruption that's gotten into the faith. Isn't that sad? When man gets his hands on the things of God, he makes a dirty mess of it. And God is not going to allow this to continue. Eventually, his, his kingdom will come because it's this corruption and it's not good. So let me just do this, okay, just to throw some history out at you. There were three Roman-Jewish wars, started in 66 A.D., culminating all the way to 135 A.D., and they were not contiguous, means they weren't touching. There was a gap of time. It was the the first Roman-Jewish war, then the Quito's War, and then after that, the Bar Kokhba Revolt. Bar Kokhba was a guy who proclaimed himself as the Messiah after Jesus' death, and it was a miserable failure, obviously, because he was not the Messiah. And the Romans ended up... It was terrible. There was a slaughter. There was, the Jews were expelled from Jerusalem, weren't allowed to go back. Close to a million Jews were killed in this thing. Bad leadership gets people killed. We've seen it with dictators. We've seen it in history. Don't give one man or one woman too much power. It always ends badly. Now, what is that, where's the parallel for us? Spiritually, bad leadership kills. 
it can keep people from the kingdom of heaven. In Matthew 23, Jesus spoke to the religious leaders and said, not only are you not getting to heaven, but your disciples that you're twisting their minds, they're not going to get into heaven either because it's basically what you're doing is it's a cult. Right? And we've seen enough of the cults over the years, right? mass killings and suicides and stuff. So these are some important points to take. Now, sometimes God needs to destroy and start all over instead of trying to reform. And we've seen that in the Bible. We've seen that in history as well. And sometimes we see this in, in Christianity where movements or, or upstart things start and then they end up dying. Remember what Jesus said about the, the wineskins. He said that, that the old wineskins have old wine because one time the wine was new and the wineskins were new. Well, the wine got old and the wineskins dried up. He said, now if you were to take new wine and put it in the old wineskin, as it expanded and contracted, it would split it because it's not pliable anymore and all the wine would spill out. That's a great illustration. We can see that in the church too. Sometimes movements, I say this too, let me just be honest here, I'm loyal to Jesus Christ. We're at Calvary, I'm not loyal to Calvary. There's a lot of guys that are, that are doing things that were started 40, 50 years ago that was a new work of the Spirit, that maybe the Spirit is doing something different, and they're still old wineskins. You know, when the Holy Spirit does a new work, if you're not willing to move with what God is saying and you want to dig your heels in with something that happened in the glory days 50 years ago or 100 years ago in your denomination, you're going to be, it's, it's not going to be good. The Holy Spirit's not in that. The wineskins are going to split. So it's something even in a personal application in our lives. You know, sometimes what we did 20, 30 years ago, again, we look at the glory days, but today God wants to do something new in us and we're being resistant to it. So keep that in mind. Keep that in mind. So we, we look at things at an aggregate scale and then we have to also fine tune it because we're here this morning as individuals. We have to look at this on a personal application as well. What is God showing me? What is he saying to me? What does he want me to do? How does he want me to change? And how are we resistant because the old way was more comfortable? I got to tell you, I don't like change. I'm, I'm, I'm a routine person. You know what I'm saying? I like my routines. When, when something gets tweaked and I, I, I'm out of my routine, it's uncomfortable for me. But I have to follow what the Lord is saying. Otherwise, he's not going to use me. He'll use somebody else. Verse 11. Let's go back. Okay, all the, the incredible cerebral activity, is, it's subsiding now. We're going to start moving through this. Uh, verse 11, it says, And Jesus went into Jerusalem and into the temple. So when he had looked around at all things, as the hour was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. So Jesus does a little investigation. I'm going to save the cleansing of the temple for the next time we come together. Um, I don't want to jam too much in one message. I only have a few verses to go here. Starting, uh, continuing on verse 12. Now the next day when they had come out from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing from afar a fig tree having leaves, he went to see if perhaps he would find something on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. In response, Jesus said to it, Let no one eat fruit from you ever again. And his disciples heard it. I'm going to jump to 20. Now in the morning, as they passed by, they saw the fig tree dried up from the roots. And Peter, remembering, said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree which you cursed has withered away. So Jesus answered and said to them, Have faith in God. For surely I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, Be removed and be cast into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that those things he says will come to pass, he will have whatever he says. 
Therefore, I say to you, whatever things you ask when you pray, believe that you receive them and you will have them. The fig tree is cursed. What does it mean? <laughs> Sometimes I have to find myself really explaining things because somebody will say, that was mean. Why did he do that to the poor fig tree? Why did he do that to the pigs? We'll get into it. I mean, there's a major spiritual application that has to happen to this. So the fig tree, I have one at my house, and I was bragging about it earlier this year, and it's about eight feet tall. I got to tell you, there's all green figs. I'm not getting any figs this year. Me and the fig tree, we have a thing going on, you know. Um, if it's a harsh winter, it'll come back and it'll produce figs, but they won't ripen in time for the season to be over. And I really think God punished me for bragging in front of you guys, and that's okay. So, if you take, any, uh, you take most varieties of fig trees and you put it out in that climate, now remember, we're going overseas to a place where the cl- it's usually a good climate for these type of um, trees. What you would have is, you could have three crops of figs in the right climate, and the presence of leaves would often indicate some fruit. Even if they were little buds, there would be something there. In this instance, the Lord found nothing. He found not one fig. It wasn't the season, or it really wasn't the season, in a sense, to be harvested, but there should have been at least one fig on the tree. So here's the point. God is hungering for fruit. And the leaves give an appearance of fruit. It's an enticing tree, but absolutely, completely fruitless. What's the spiritual application? Well, the fig tree, often symbolic of the nation of Israel, and it was supposed to produce spiritual fruit. Now, if you look at Micah, Jeremiah, a lot of the prophets, you can see this in God repeatedly speaking about his nation and his people to produce fruit. So at, the, at times in the Old Testament and at the time in the first century, they were not, the people were not producing fruit. Remember, they were supposed to have the Gentiles see them and be attracted to the monotheistic God so they could be saved too. But they weren't doing what they were supposed to do. Why do God's people even exist? Why do we exist? I don't know about you, but I know what I was saved from. I knew what type of person I was. And it wasn't good. And I know, looking back, I was on the wide road leading to destruction. I just am appreciative for what God did for me. So I want to serve him the rest of the days of my life. Now, is it easy? You think that this is easy? This is enjoyable. This is a nice part of being a pastor. But there's a lot of things that just are not pleasant. And... Why do we do the things that we do for appreciation, right? If you truly appreciate the Lord, you look up at times and say, Lord, I don't want to live just for me. I want to live for you, Lord. What do you want me to do? Even if we have simple skills, and we don't, it doesn't matter. It's, there's got to be a humble heart. And that's what God's people should always do. But what happens is pride and sanctimony end up getting into the community of God's people. It happened back then. The, a lot of the Jewish leaders hated the Gentiles. And if a Gentile so much as walked past them and kicked up the dust and it, it got on their body, they would wash themselves three times because they were, they were grossed out by a Gentile even coming near them. That's not what God was looking for. Where does that leave us as a church? Do we get saved and think now we've arrived and, and we look down our nose? That's a weird concept. How do you do that? How do we forget what we've been saved from? And I've seen it. I've been to a few churches and I've seen it. And it's not pretty. Why are we in church today? Because somebody coerced us? Because we feel obligated? Because it's what we do. 
as the Christian community or because we desire a relationship with God. We want to understand them through his word and we want to bear fruit. I'll tell you this, John 15, John 15, I don't give a lot of homework, but if we could all just maybe in the next few days read John 15, right? Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. That is really the New Testament parallel to the Old Testament type of God's people bearing fruit. It's very simple to understand, and it really shows this beautiful relationship between the believer individually and Jesus Christ, you know? The vine gives the, gives the water, it gives the nutrients. You cut the branch off from the vine and it dies. There's a lesson in there, folks. We have to be tied into the Lord to get those so-called nutrients and hydration in a spiritual sense. So there's the parallel. Um, just really read that a few times and meditate on it because it's, it's a beautiful portion of Scripture. But there's also consequences for not abiding in the vine. Do we desire to get to the finish line? I do. I want, to, I want to run the race to win. But I want to pull as many people as I can over the line with me. And I think the more we appreciate what the Lord has done for us, how we've been forgiven, how we've been shown grace and mercy, we want to do the same thing. We want to pull a whole bunch of people over the finish line with us. In verse 20, Jesus said that, or the Bible tells us that the tree was dried up from the roots. In Matthew 3.10, John the Baptist said, the axe is laid at the roots. If you know anything about horticulture or gardening or whatever, even weeds, you can pull a weed at the top and say, I got that nasty weed, and there's this whole root system underneath, and it'll just push the thing right back up. In a few days, you'll see it back again. If you don't take it out by the root, okay, you don't kill it. And there's some things in our lives that we have roots in our hearts in a spiritual sense. Things get into our lives. Maybe the comfort, maybe the Western illusion, the Western lifestyle as Christians. And, and that slowly, Satan is very patient. If you watch a root grow, you actually can't watch a root grow. You'd actually be quicker for you to watch uh, water to boil. Root moves very slowly and very subtly. And it's the same thing spiritually with our hearts. Roots start to get in there. And maybe we start off well, but... If we take a look spiritually, it's a tangled mess. And those roots got to be pulled out. And if we don't pull out the root, the problem just re-manifests itself again. So it's, it's no accident that the Bible keeps speaking about these roots. If I look at this, this tree, <laughs> this is, I tell you, my tree is about eight feet tall. And I can't eat not one fig from this tree, <laughs> okay? Um, and it's kind of cool. At nighttime, the, the leaves, um, they fold up. It's real pretty. And in the morning, when the sun comes out, they open up again. But if you have a presence of leaves, you have a presence of fruit. And even if it's a small green piece of fruit, it's still there. To see something like this with leaves and no fruit was a, an anomaly. It was, it was, it was a contradiction. Again, it would be very enticing. It would put up a false um, front, and then actually when you get close to it, you realize that it's, it deceived you. Okay, So this is what he's dealing with. In the nation, the nation put out the leaves. right? The leaves. People could see the temple. People could see the... And you see today, somebody, you know, even whatever, a clergyman, whatever, it's a collar or a robe, we tend to look at that and think, oh... 
or a guy with a big hat and a staff, and we say, oh, that's a holy man, really? Or a guy just with a robe or a toga, and they say nice things all the time. There's the leaves, real pretty. But when you get closer and you look for fruit, you find nothing. And this was the illustration that... um, This was the illustration that Jesus made about the fig tree. So we're going to skip the part about the the, uh, cleansing of the temple. Um, There's a lot we covered today. But basically, this is what happens. Christ comes riding into Jerusalem as the promised Messiah. He's largely rejected by supposedly spiritual leaders. Therefore, the nation had a lack of spiritual fruit production, and God had to deal with them, especially for their rejection of their chosen Messiah. And this is emblematic in the cursing of the fig tree. Check this out. Israel ceased to be a nation for roughly 1,900 years. And in 1948, Israel became a nation again. Isn't that amazing? What other nation have you ever... God has his hand on these people. Don't get me wrong. He's never cast them out. There's a a theology today called replacement theology. It's really sad. it's It's wormed its way into some churches... And it basically says that there's no promises left for the Jews in Israel. And you can see how Westerners are turning against the Jews, right? There's a Holocaust that the Bible speaks about in our future. And you say, well, how could that happen again? Because the roots are being laid. The seeds are being put down for this garbage. I think a lot of the reasons why we and and other churches are blessed so much is because of our love for Israel and the Jewish people. God has never cast them away. He's punished them. But in 1948, a nation that was a nation that ceased to be a nation now became a nation again because because of end times prophecy. Israel is in the end times. You read the book of Revelation. As a matter of fact, according to Ezekiel 37, read that, the valley of the dry bones. Look, man of God, look what I'm going to do. Look at this valley of dry bones. And he starts putting the bones together with sinews and muscle, and he starts to make an army of people. And that was, there was a lot of things that that prophesied, but one of the things was the rebirth of the nation of Israel, 1948. In World War II, Christians were confused. They're like, what? They don't understand. In 1948, it made sense. It all started to piece together again. What are the ramifications of the triumphal entry, which is what the message is about this morning? The ramification is, I got news for you, according to the Bible, According to Thessalonians, according to Revelation, the apostate church is starting to rear its head. Filth is getting into the church. We already start to see the groundwork for it. You you listen to some of these pastors, and you're like, what the heck are they saying? Do these guys even read the scripture? The Pope recently said, and listen, I got the article in my office. I always do my investigatory work. He said basically that you can't have a direct relationship with Jesus. The church has to be a part of it, you know? That's nonsense. Does he read his Bible? Is he saved? And I'm not saying this just for shock value, but how do you say something like that? That goes against all the Lord's teachings. So this is what you have, and everybody's following these charismatic leaders. They're swooning towards them, which is going to set the stage for the Antichrist and his false prophet, and he's going to have this ecumenical movement that's going to bring everybody into one fold, but it's a false church. It's a facade. The real believers will be taken into heaven. When the apostate Christianity takes over, where will you be? Will you have the courage to stand against some of these teachings, some of the garbage we find in online and Christian bookstores? 
And I'm going to be honest, when I go to the East Coast Pastors Conference, that place, their bookstore, has a lot of garbage in it. And they serve as pastors and pastors' wives. It's everywhere. We need to stick with the Word. The Word is what gives life. It's living. This is our foundation. When this happens, the true church will survive. Jesus said the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Where will you and I be? Will we be caught up in a Western illusion? Will we be caught up in cultural Christianity? What if the Lord came back today? Would you hear him say, well done, thy good and faithful servant? These are, these are the ramifications ultimately of the triumphal entry. Let's pray. You've been listening to To Every Generation from Calvary Chapel Crossfield. We're located at 15 Half Acre Road in Jamesburg, New Jersey. We meet for Bible study Wednesdays at 7.30 p.m. and Sunday service begins at 10.30 a.m. On Sundays, we have children's church for all ages in addition to infant and nursery care. You can find out more about the ministry here at Calvary Chapel Crossfields by going to cccrossfields.org. Thanks for listening and may God bless you. Thank you.